Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Jason Haas studied archaeology at university and worked in the tech industry for four years before joining the family winery, Tadlas Creek, in Passel Robles in 2002. Since then, he's helped to turn it into one of the leading Rhone-style specialists in California. Listen to us chat about alpacas and sheep, organics, biodynamics and regenerative agriculture, the hidden wonders of Vaccarez, his passion for blogging and why continuity matters. Hi Jason, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Tim? I'm really well. Um, late in the afternoon here and early morning where you are, I think, isn't it? You've got a coffee on the go? Uh, I do. A cup of tea, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, it uh, feels even earlier than it probably is because <laughs> I spent a lot of yesterday at the Paso Robles Wine Festival shouting about the wines that uh, that we were pouring to the thousands of assembled guests. De- dealing with the general public, always, always, <laughs> always fun. <laughs> It was. This was a particularly fun one, though. Uh, we yeah. uh, we brought our a couple of our sheep from our biodynamic flock and brought this whole sort of regenerative farming discussion demonstration area. So had much more interesting conversations than I usually do at my festival. <laughs> do the sheep have names? Uh, no, not the sheep, uh, because they are. Um, how do we put this? Perhaps temporary uh, inhabitants of our of our vineyard. And then they move on, right? <laughs> Onto a plate. <laughs> At times, yes. Yeah, exactly. There's so much stuff I want to talk to you about, including obviously all the regenerative stuff, because you're one of the leading people in the field. But I wanted to start with your dad. I mean, I was, I was lucky enough to meet your dad once. He was an amazing wine importer, a bit of a Renaissance man. He was a war vet and all sorts of stuff, wasn't he? So we know that wine was part of your life growing up because he was a very famous wine merchant. Just tell us a bit about him and the influence he, he had on you. I think everybody just grows up thinking that their dad is their dad. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was, uh, he started working for his father um, when he got out of college and out of the Navy after World War II. And my grandfather was a, sort of an innovator in his own right. He was the, the guy who got the first retail liquor license granted by the state of New York after the repeal of Prohibition. And so turned what had been a family butcher shop into a liquor store and eventually New York's top fine wine shop. Yeah. So my dad grew up um, surrounded by, by wine and by wine people um, and decided in his 20s that he wanted to be the next wine buyer for this store. And so um, he made these deep friendships with mostly French producers. And as I was growing up, they, would, they were regular visitors to our house in Vermont. Um, and I got taken along as, I'm sure, difficult and, and noisy baggage along on his uh, twice annual wine buying trips to France and grew up playing with the kids of the producers whose wines he was buying. And I I just thought this was normal. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it's been really cool over the last 20 plus years as I've gotten to work on this project that he started to to sort of see him through other people's eyes in in an interesting way and realize the, the influence and the impact that he had, not just on the people who he worked with, but on the the kind of broader wine culture in America. Yeah, and I think he had a very easy manner. He was he was an easy guy to talk to and get on with and have fun with. And I think I think that came across. You know, I think the French appreciate that. I mean, the last thing they want is people sucking up to them. Yeah, he has he had no airs. I yeah. mean, he he basically didn't particularly like to be the center of attention. But if you got him talking, he had 
decades of great stories and and he genuinely loved what he was doing he loved the the connection that wine had to to people and to place and to culture and and i think he always thought himself really lucky to to have found himself in this in this kind of career that he loved um, working with people who he was inspired by and selling a product that he believed in I mean, as you said, you know, he, he, was a, he was a buyer and an importer, but then he decided to become a producer, right? I think you were 16 when he set up Tablas Creek, which is where you run now with you, and he, he did it with the Perrin brothers. So that's Jean-Pierre and Francois, obviously, from Chateau de Bocastel and Chateau Neuf du Pape. How did that project come about? Was it something he was looking to do anyway? So I think a lot of people who were involved in the selling, the buying and selling of other people's wines harbor these, these, uh, these dreams at some point of, of making their own. Um, and he had been close with the Perrins really ever since he started working with Jacques in the late late sixties, and he did regular trips around the United States with Jean Pierre and Francois in the seventies and eighties to sell their sell their French wines. And every time they would go to California, they would find themselves talking about how much it reminded them of the south of France and how surprised they were that in this Mediterranean climate, they they saw so many people looking at Burgundy and Bordeaux for their models and not at Chateau Neuf du Pape and. Mm-hmm. It sort of grew organically out of out of these conversations. They started saying, "Oh, one day maybe we should do something," as early as the mid seventies. So it took them a decade to get the the money saved up, and and then they did and make the decision to actually go for it. But but they did. I mean, do you remember the start of it? I mean, you were sixteen, so you're old enough to be to to be interested in wine and to see what was going on. I mean, did you have this hunch that it was going to be your life in the future? I, I don't I don't think I thought about it in that way. I mean, I I grew up. Spending summers working in France, working at vineyards. If I didn't make myself another summer job, I tended to get sent to France to work, to work for the summer. And so I'd spent a couple of summers with the parents, and I knew that there was this family friendship. And I thought that I mean, they had kids who were my age, and um, we had had a couple of those kids over to spend summers with us in Vermont. And so I figured that I would end up in wine somewhere. But it was on the other side of the country. I didn't grow up in California. This was not a salient part of what I was doing. Um, I, the, the import side was much more kind of front of mind for, for, for me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see myself doing that. I didn't see myself buying and selling other people's wines. So I didn't know where I would land in the wine business, but I knew that wine was full of fascinating people and figured that I'd end up in it somewhere. Um, and when I'd finished college in 95 and spent a... And you, stu- you studied archaeology, didn't you, at Cornell, right? <laughs> I did in grad yeah. school, yes. Um, but in between college and grad school, I, I took a, like eight months off. And one of the things I did was come out here for a harvest. And I found that piece of, of, of working in wine really fascinating. And at that point, that sort of crystallized my decision that, yes, at some point, this is the piece of all of this empire that I want to work with. So you weren't trying to avoid a career in wine by studying archaeology instead. I mean, you, you knew that you'd end up somewhere in wine, really. I, I did. But I also didn't want to go straight into a family business right out of school. I didn't feel like I would have brought yeah. enough. I wouldn't have had enough confidence in my own decisions. So, um, And there wasn't really much of a business to be involved in at that point anyway. This was still pretty theoretical. We didn't even have a winery, yet, let alone wine to sell. So... It, was, it wasn't until um, I finished grad school in 98, and that was still a little early, so I, got, I decided to go um, into tech, worked in a tech company for four years, and that ended up being essentially business school for me. 
joining this little tech startup as the seventh employee and staying there for four years and being a part of the company growing to 80 people and getting a chance to manage people and manage projects and write and teach and market and make a million mistakes and hopefully learn from most of them. And so that's been useful then, is it? In what you're doing now? So useful. Yeah. So useful. Yeah. Because, I mean, people forget that wineries are businesses. I mean, I think they, they think of the romance of, of uh, oh, you're, you're walking amongst the barrels and, and tasting the different wines and then hosting dinners and um, having uh, people come to you and, and, and ask you questions about the intricacies of the wines that you've made. I mean, there's, there's the whole business aspect of, of a successful winery. And that's what I use all of that that tech experience for. I mean, it's amazing how people actually go into the wine business from outside it, not even thinking it's a business, you know, not realizing or thinking about how they're going to have to make money out of it. I mean, you know, people are very naive, uh, seems to me. I mean, that's the that's the classic joke. Like, how do you make a small fortune in the wine industry? <laughs> Start with a large fortune from somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, and I think people feel like if you know how to make great wines, that's going to be enough. I mean, I think it's necessary, but not sufficient. Mm. So you have to also have a, have a plan for how you're going to sell the wine that you make, um, how you want to market the things that you're doing. It's a, it's a fascinating combination of different aspects that I really love as a business. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's got complex pieces that I think people underestimate. So, you know, your dad living in Vermont, um, the parents living in Chateauneuf-du-Pape, you know, how many thousand, five thousand miles away or something. How did they end up in Paso Robles? What were they looking for down there? So there were three things that they were looking for. And they if you'd asked them at the beginning of this search where they thought they were going to end up, they would have said Sonoma. I mean, they did not come into this thinking that Paso was going to be was going to be the place. Mm-hmm. But there were we, we wanted this kind of Mediterranean-like climate, long days, plenty of sun, enough heat to ripen grapes like Morvedra and Roussan that ripen really late. Um, but moderated by altitude or proximity to the ocean or something that was going to keep the earlier ripening Rhone varieties like Viognier and Syrah happy. We wanted enough rainfall to farm without having to irrigate, at least in the long run. And we wanted calcareous soils. And it was the, the that sort of limestone, old seabed um, calcareous soils that led us to the central coast after a couple of years looking in the north coast. Because those are rare in California, aren't they? Surprisingly rare in California, yeah. They are. there Because yeah. most of California is on the North American tectonic plate. Mm-hmm. And it's only this little sliver of land in the central coast where you're on the Pacific plate that got forced up out of the ocean as the, the plates collided. And mm-hmm. most of the places where there's those kinds of soils are too cold to ripen Morvedra, Grenache, Roussan. So it's just this little kind of piece of western Paso Robles where you're on the east slope of the coast range so it warms up. You're within 15 miles or so of the ocean, so you get enough rainfall and enough cooling at night, and you're on these kinds of soils. So it was sort of to our surprise, as much as everybody else's, that where we where we chose to settle was Paso. And, and all the cuttings came from the Southern Rhone, did it? From the Perron's own vineyards, so mass selections, really? Yeah, so we basically, we, we looked around, and there were some of the Rhone varieties that were available in California in 1989. I mean, there was Syrah here, there was Viognier here, there was Marsan here. But there were grapes that had never been used in America. Nobody had ever planted Grenache Blanc or Crunoise or Picpoul. And then Morvedra, Grenache, and Roussan, which were going to be our three most important grapes, were here but didn't have a great reputation. And the more research we did, the more convinced we became that at some point somebody had selected clones for high productivity rather than high quality. Mm. And we didn't want to wonder forever after if we were tasting differences between France and California because the genetic material of the vines were different. Mm. We wanted to know that if there were differences, it was choices that we'd made or 
soils or, or climate. Um, so we decided to sidestep the whole, the whole worry and import new cuttings of everything. So that meant at the beginning, eight varieties, Morvedra, Grenache, Syrah, Cunoise, Roussan, Marsan, Viognier, Grenache Blanc, um, waited three years for them to clear a U.S. government-mandated quarantine, built our own grapevine nursery, propagated vines, finally got vines planted five years after we bought the property. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then had to wait three more years to get our first crop. So it was a very long, slow process, but it, it, it gave us confidence that we had what we thought we had and that what we had was high quality. And it also allowed us to sort of start up the second business of selling grapevine cuttings because we've sold millions of grapevine cuttings over the last 25 years. And that helped allow the flowering of the, the kind of modern road rangers movement in a way that I don't think ever would have happened otherwise. Because they knew that the material was so good. Yeah. And there were varieties that had never even been there before. Yeah. So, so yeah, the combination of the high quality material and, and just the access to some of these grapes. That... And did you plant all of the Chateauneuf varieties? I mean, I get confused whether it's 13 or 14. I think some people count Grenache twice or three times, don't they? Whether it's Grenache Blanc, Grenache Gris and, and Grenache exactly Grenache. It. Yes. So at the beginning, we didn't. At the beginning, we only planted six. Yeah. Um, we had uh, Morvedra, Grenache, Syrah, Grenache Noir, Syrah, mm -hmm. Cunoise, and then Roussan and Grenache Blanc. Um, but in 2003, we decided that we'd had so much success with some of the rarer varieties like Cunoise, like Grenache Blanc, that we should try all the rest of them. Mm. So we completed the collection and took new cuttings out of the vineyards of Bocastel, waited, in some cases, 15 years for them to be cleared, cleaned up um, at UC Davis and cleared through quarantine and then released to us. So we have them all now. Yeah, Muscadel, you didn't get till 2019. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, 16 years of quarantine later. <laughs> it's like a, pre a penal sentence, isn't it? I get it. I understand why they have to do this quarantine. You don't want to bring in a virus that might spread no, and, and exactly. wipe out your whole community. But yeah. yeah, it was a long time to wait. And you went organic from the start. I mean, you certified since 2003, been biodynamically certified since 2017. Did that original direction come from the Perrins or was that a mutual decision? Yeah, I mean, it was a mutual decision, but the it's one of the things that the parents have, have always believed, which is that you only really have a great chance of showing off your terroir if you're minimizing what you're putting on from the outside. So they've been organic since the 1950s, and that was always going to be our baseline. Um, and it was the the belief that if we were really trying to minimize what we were putting on from the outside, that it shouldn't be just that we were putting on organic fertilizer instead of chemical fertilizer, we should be trying to eliminate having to put on fertilizer entirely that led us from organics to biodynamics, where we were creating our own fertility using our own mixed flock of sheep, um, planting a specific cover crop mix, leaving sections for beneficial habitat. That sort of led us to biodynamics um, starting in 2010, finally got the certification in 2017. And it was that process that I think got us invited to be a part of the pilot program for for the regenerative organics. It's interesting. I read somewhere that you said you, you felt you'd taken both to the logical conclusion, using your, your term. I mean, are you happy with some of the less scientific, logical bits, if you like, of biodynamics in particular? You know, the kind of deer's bladder and trees and that kind of stuff. I mean, do you? <laughs> sort of, I mean, you know, you're 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 a very intelligent guy. Do you look? I mean, do you think? Oh, I've got to suspend a bit of belief here. Um, absolutely. Or disbelief. So. Yeah. so it's one of the reasons why I think we found um, regenerative organic so appealing is that it sort of separated the soil science pieces of biodynamics from the mysticism pieces. Yeah. And I think some of those 
there's good science behind. Like if you look at the burying the cow horn for a certain number of lunar cycles, I mean, yes, what you're doing is you're essentially allowing manure to ripen. Um, you're allowing microorganisms to grow, and then you are spreading these millions of microorganisms that are in this even relatively small sample in a way that they will then propagate and, and have a positive impact. But I don't think in general biodynamics works for the reason that the literature says it works. You're not activating right. cosmic energies. You're not uh, – what, what you're doing is you're creating, you're creating a, a healthy microbiome. And so the regenerative organic certification takes all of that soil health stuff from biodynamics um, and then adds onto it things that biodynamics doesn't concern itself with, like resource use. Um, like reducing your use of groundwater, reducing your use of non-renewable energy. It includes things like um, paying your workers a living wage, yeah. um, which all of these important things that are just outside of the scope of what either organics or biodynamics talks about. And it sort of ties it together in a single system. And But I do think some of it is that the, the those more kind of pixies and fairy dust pieces of biodynamics mm. feel to me like, a huge hurdle to get it adopted more broadly. And given that agriculture uses something like a third of the earth's landmass, if we can't figure out a way to do agriculture in a, in a more earth-friendly way, like a lot of the, the big picture challenges of resource scarcity and climate change are probably unsolvable. Um, and as long as people have to be talking about cosmic energies, I don't think you're going to get broad adoption of biodynamics. I don't think you are. I mean, tell us a bit, you've told us a little bit about the way you farm. Um, just explain the regenerative stuff to us. I mean, how important are animals, the ecosystem? Because you've got sheep, you've already mentioned them, you took them to the fair yesterday. Alpacas, I think, haven't you? And donkeys, and the donkeys keep people away. They can be nasty donkeys, can't they? <laughs> just, just tell us a little bit about, about how the farm works. It's really fascinating, I yeah. So if you think of a farm, it's a naturally kind of unstable, unnatural environment because you're, you're generally growing a crop and don't have a lot of diversity in terms of other species that are, that are involved. And that's, that's why you need to do things like add fertilizer from the outside because you're not getting that created in a natural way. So a lot of what you're trying to do with regenerative farming is create an ecosystem that has its own natural balance. And one of the most important things you can do is figure out a way to incorporate animals into the crop that you're growing that's not going to mean you don't have a crop. I mean, obviously, you can't just let a flock of sheep wander wander uncontrolled through your through your vineyard year round or else they're going to happily yeah they'll eat, eat the it. grass but they'll eat the grapes <laughs> also and you won't have a crop yeah. so you have to come up with with kind of a more systematic way of using them and what we do is um it's called mob grazing where you basically take a large flock and our sheep gets up to, our flock gets up to about 250 sheep in the winter mm. and so we'll we'll build these um movable electric fences that enclose them in an area of about an acre and a half and then let them graze there for 24 hours. And they'll graze pretty intensively because that's a lot of sheep in a relatively small area. They, it means they don't pick and choose. They'll graze all of the cover crop down. They drop something like 700 pounds of manure in a day. Wow. And then we move them to the next block. And we do this every 24 hours from harvest, so as soon as we have the grapes off the vine, through bud break. So it's figure sometime in mid-October through sometime in early April where we're moving them block to block through the entire vineyard. Um, and we can get them through each block two or three times, depending on how the rains come in the winter. 
So you figure you've got something like 1,500 to 2,000 pounds of manure per acre that's applied to the to the vineyard. It's a huge amount of fertility. It also there's all of these microbes that live naturally in the in the sheep stomachs, um, and so you're essentially seeding the, the 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 soil with nutrients and then with the microorganisms that that it needs to break those nutrients down. Um, and we combine that with things like um, leaving sections with flowering plants that are going to attract the, the sorts of insects that we know we want, that'll control the insects that are potential problems. We have a cover crop mix that does different things like holding the soil in place, and some of them are legumes, so it fixes nitrogen in the soil. Some of the others are like soil aerators. We use these big daikon radishes that grow a foot or two down into the soil that act as soil aerators. And, and then all of that biomass gets returned to the soil by the sheep. So, so that's sort of the core of what that regenerative farming does is you're essentially creating what would happen in a natural environment, but in a way where you can continue to grow your crop. I mean, is say sheep manure very different from cow manure? I mean, you know, do they have very different, different properties? Or is manure manure? They have, mo- they have modestly different properties. Yeah. But in general, sheep are much easier to, easier to move around than cows are. And they're, yeah. they're generally less destructive they're, they're yeah. smaller and they don't blunder through things and um and they when you move one of them they all move yeah um, that's one of the nice things that's one of the reasons we actually don't have Whereas cows don't cows are because they, so they're just sort of they do their own thing um and it's one of the reasons why we don't have as many alpacas as we once did at one point we had a dozen alpacas but we were we had a dozen alpacas and 200 sheep and you move the first sheep and all the sheep follow and the alpacas scatter like Oh, look, a butterfly over there. And so we just haven't replaced the alpacas as they've died of old age. They're dying off. <laughs> um, so we have one alpaca left. He's sort of our flock mascot oh, at this point. An alpaca. Right. Okay. Just tell us about how you think this form of agriculture works with, with climate change. Do you find that the vines are healthier and resist drought and, and, uh, and, and heat? Um, not fire so much, obviously, but I mean, drought and heat but better with this type of agriculture? I, I think it helps with climate change in two ways. Um, so one is what you say. So so yes, so you're essentially packing the soil with a much higher um, organic content, carbon content. So it's, it is then able to hold more moisture, um, which means that the vines are less susceptible to things like heat spikes and droughts. Um, we also feel like in this very high stress environment of Paso Robles, where it's quite hot during the day, but can be very cold at night. Um, where it doesn't rain essentially between May and October every year, that what we're doing is we're we're just sort of reducing the stress levels on the vines, which hopefully will allow the vines to live longer and give us older vines and therefore higher quality grapes. So it helps on the on the side of making soils more resilient and vines more resilient, but it also helps because what you're doing is essentially taking those carbohydrates, which are atmospheric carbon, and then pulling it out of the atmosphere and fixing it in the soil where it actually can do good. And one of the statistics that I love that the Regenerative Organic Alliance shares is that we could unwind, basically trap all of the carbon that has been released since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution if we could increase the carbon content of our topsoil around the world by half a percent. Wow. Um, And if you look at the, the carbon content of the soil at Tablas Creek, and when we've done these tests, what we have compared to what you have outside our fences on, on neighbor's property, 
our carbon content is between six and six and a half percent, and the average in agricultural California is two percent. So we've raised our carbon content of our soil roughly 10 times what you would need to do globally in order to trap all of the carbon dioxide that's been released yeah. in, over that's, the last couple of centuries. That's a that's a fantastic statistic, and it's quite inspiring in a way. It does show that there is a there is a possible way out of this mess. That's one of the things that has sort of kept me going over recent yeah. years is, is to feel like we we are at least exploring a, a kind of a, a way of farming that that has potential for the future because I think it's pretty easy to to look at what's going on out in the world and and find it kind of hopeless mm-hmm. um, and realizing that there are there are things that we can be doing if we can spread the word about them successfully mm-hmm. that can make a real difference is mm-hmm. it, 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 makes it meaningful to go to work every day. No, that's good. Let's talk about the wines a little bit. I mean, you released the first wines, I think, in 97. Um, you hadn't arrived then, obviously, at the, at the farm, but you, you you knew about it, obviously, and you were involved with it. Um, was there much of a Rhone Ranger scene at that time? Had the Rhone Ranger movement started? I mean, that famous cover, Randall appeared, didn't he, on the cover of the Wine Spectator dressed up as the Lone Ranger. I don't know if there was a Tonto alongside him, but I remember <laughs> I remember the outfit. Had that yes. begun? We we are we are grateful. We are all grateful for Randall for being being a willing to go on with a, go along with stunts like that, and b just for like being willing to be the, the that first voice in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, but no, when we started, there were a handful of Rhone producers. You can think of Randall for sure at Bonnie Dune, but also like Bob Linquist at Coupe or had started right. Yeah, had started yeah. Fred Klein up at Klein Cellars. Um, John Alban was just getting started. Um. So there were there were a handful of Rhone producers, but they were pretty widely scattered, and they were working with whatever happened to be in California at the time. So they were working sort of with with one hand tied behind their backs in terms of in terms of grape varieties and and material, right? The genetic material they had exactly. Um, and so I remember in the in the early years going out, and even before I moved out here, I was t- trying to take a day or two each month to go out and work with our distributors on the East Coast and try to help sell these wines. And it was a real uphill battle because we were making blends that didn't have a category. We were working with grapes that most people didn't know and couldn't pronounce. Mm-hmm. We were in a part of California that they'd never heard of. And the wines had French names that didn't mean anything to people. So we had four strikes against us before like, we could even get the, the wines into people's glasses. And it's one of the things that has has really turned around what we've been doing from a business side is that there's a community that's developed around us where we can work alongside other producers with organizations like the Rhone Rangers or yeah. events like Hospice de Rhone yeah. and, and work to help get the category established. Yeah. Uh, but no, in the early years, it was tough. Yeah, it, it, it was a tough sell. Just tell us how many wines you make because you've got three tiers. I think that's right, isn't it? So we have, we have three tiers of blends that we'll make and actually put into distribution. But in a normal year, we might make as many as 30 different wines. And wow. the that's because... Well, actually, let me go back a little bit. In our uh, the other issue in the in the early years is that our plan was to make just two wines: one red wine that we called Tablas Creek Rouge, and one white wine that we called Tablas Creek Blanc. Which is what you did at the start, wasn't it? That was that was the first yeah. like three or four years. That's what we did. Yeah. Um, we eventually got the feedback that this was not a those, those names were not terribly helpful. Um, yes, it's already on the red side of your list, Jason. Like uh, the the name Rouge is not telling anyone anything useful. So we decided to break those single blends into a top tier that we called at the time Esprit de Bocastel and Esprit de Bocastel Blanc, which was 
allowed us to make kind of a reserve level wine that was modeled consciously after the Bocastel red and white. And then what we called the Cote Tablas, which we used the Coudelet de Bocastel, the section of the Bocastel estate that's in Cote du Rhone and not Chateauneuf as our model. So allowed us to, instead of having our red, the red esprit was based on Morvedra, the Cote Tablas red was based on Grenache. And same thing with the white, the, the esprit white was based on Roussan, like the Bocastel Blanc. And then the Cote de Tablas Blanc was Viognier and Marsan based. Mm. So it gave us the ability to have wines at different prices, something at a, at a price that a restaurant could pour by the glass, and also be more selective about our top wine, which helped it get better recognition. So that was the beginning. And then it sort of like metastasized from there. So <laughs> um, we, we realized a couple of years after that, that there were always some lots that were so characteristic of a specific grape that it seemed a shame to blend them away. And we had just opened our tasting room in 2002 and having the opportunity when people come out and be like, oh, this is based on Morvedra. I, I, I have no idea what Morvedra is all about. To be able to pull a bottle from behind the, the bar and be like, well, you want to taste 100% mm -hmm. Morvedra? Mm -hmm. That ended up being a really powerful addition to what we were doing. And mm -hmm. when you have 14 different varieties and you try to bottle them varietally each year, or at least as, as often as you can, that all of a sudden adds a lot, a lot of wines to your portfolio. And then we've added some additional blends, the occasional sweet wine, and, and end up with a big number. And, and, and some of them just go into the tasting room, do they? Yeah, probably two-thirds of what we make are just available at the tasting room or, yeah. or via e-commerce. Yeah. And, you know, your three major red varieties, then are Grenache, Syrah, Morved, as they've been from the start, really. I mean, do you think they work well on their own, or are they varieties that work better in blends? Honestly, I think all three of them are delicious on their own, um, but they also are so compatible with each other that sometimes it's hard not to blend them. Mm. I mean, if you think of, particularly think of Syrah and Grenache, I think are the kind of the classic pairing where Grenache is juicy and spicy and vibrant and high toned and has good acid and can be lovely, but it can be a little simple and a little, taste a little candied on its own. Syrah is dark and meaty and herbal and tannic and, serious, but it can be kind of grim on its own sometimes. Um, and the the great thing is that a little bit of Grenache helps solve Syrah's kind of super seriousness. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of Syrah tends to help Grenache's simplicity. Yeah. And that's just a that's just one example. But these the grapes do fit together in a beautiful way. But I, I think sometimes people assume that that means that that somehow these grapes aren't capable of standing on their own, and they absolutely are. It doesn't mean that every lot is. We have to be selective about which lots we choose to bottle as a varietal wine, but I, I think all three of those do stand quite well and, on their own. And which of the other Chateauneuf, in fact, the minor, the, the, the minority grapes, if you like, add interesting things to the blend? Are there any in particular you think, hey, I can really see why they use that? There are. So I think they, they sort of divide into three categories of those minor grapes. So you have the the kind of juicy, spicy, relatively pale in color, relatively low in alcohol, kind of friendly grapes. Think of something like Cunoise and Sanso. Um, those are helpful in a large part to kind of tone down the the, the alcohol and the, the tannins of some of the other grapes. You have um, grapes like um, Terre Noir and Muscardin that are this kind of um, like herbal, floral, high tannin, high acid, but pale in color that for me, it's like a little bit of citrus zest 
Like mm. it's got this bite to it. Mm. And I can understand those are ones you have to be careful not to use too much because the wines can or make on their own. You can make it on their own. It to I find that it's sort of an acquired taste on its own. It's like it has almost bitterness to it. it tastes to me like an alpine grape, like Pulsard. Okay, yeah, that same yeah. kind of idea. Yeah, um, and then there's there's one grape that I'm incredibly excited about that is basically unplanted around the world, which is Vacarez, um, which apparently was incredibly prone to powdery mildew, which is why it almost went extinct in France. But it's dark in color kind of herby and minty, and also high in acid. And there's no other grape like it in the Rhone portfolio. The dark grapes are generally low in acid. So to have a dark, high acid, kind of herby, minty grape, we've only had it in production since 2019, but it's something that we are, we've already planted a second block of it, and yeah. we think is going to be really exciting to work with. And what about the whites? I mean, Roussan, Marsan, Viognier, are those mostly we've got planted? So Roussan and Grenache Blanc are the ones we have the most of. Um, Viognier and Marsan, because they're not Chateauneuf grapes, they're, they're Cote du Rhone grapes, but not Chateauneuf du Pape grapes, um, we don't, they're sort of ineligible for use in our Esprit Blanc. So we haven't planted a huge amount of either of those, but Roussan is the core of what we do, and it's rich and, and kind of textured and honeyed, um, ages beautifully. Mm-hmm. Grenache Blanc is bright and citrusy, a little bit licorice uh, sweet green herbs. Those are both lovely grape varieties. I think Grenache Blanc been another, is another real success story. It was it didn't exist in California when we started. There's now almost a thousand acres of it planted here, and it, it does well everywhere around the state. And Grenache Gris, do people planting that? There are some people planting it. We don't have any Grenache Gris because they don't have any at the Bocastel Estate. Right. So we, we, we sort of set the limit for ourselves of the things that are at Bocastel. I've been sort of eyeing what neighbors are doing with Grenache Gris, but haven't taken the plunge yet. <laughs> but there are some really interesting trace varieties on the white side also, almost all of which are high in acid. Yeah. And so you've got things like Picardin and Claret Blanche and Picpoul um, and Bourbalonc that are all high acid grape varieties, some more common than others. Claret is actually having a bit of a renaissance in, in, in Chateauneuf right now. Picardin is so rare that when we planted our half acre here at Tablas Creek in 2013, we increased the world's Picardin footprint by 40%. <laughs> um, but it's turned out to be delicious. Cornered so, the market, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Opened up the market, I like to think. Um, but all of those, I, I think there was a stretch. There was a long stretch in the, the Southern Rhone where whites just fell out of fashion in general. And the only whites that there was really any market for were the richest ones. Um, and so those higher acid, generally leaner white Rhone varieties, like there just wasn't a whole lot of demand for them. But as the climate has gotten warmer and the, the richer white grapes have become maybe a little heavier than they need to be, I, I think there's been a real rediscovery of what some of these higher acid varieties bring. I, I like one of the t-shirts I saw you wearing in, a, in an article where it said, terroir, wine, food, everyone, which sounds to me like a pretty good recipe for a happy life. People are very important to you, aren't they? I mean, you know, you've had your winemakers been there a long time. Your viticulture has been there a long time. You know, I, I, I think you, you like to have a team around you that's happy, don't you? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, and a, a shout out for that t-shirt. That's from one of the great wine bars in New York, which is called oh, terroir. It's done in Tribeca. <laughs> and it is, it's one of my favorite t-shirts. Um, the... So, but yeah, I mean, it, it's been one of the hallmarks of all of the businesses that my dad founded that people stay. Um, if you think of like Vineyard Brands, the import company that he ran, there are still some of the top managers there who my dad hired in the 80s and 90s who are still there 40 years later. 
And your winemaker, um, Neil Collins, has been there since the start, pretty much. Exactly. He's, uh, we, yeah. we met him when we were renting space to make our first few vintages of practice wine in 94, 95, 96. And he was the assistant winemaker at a, a neighboring winery. And we hired him in 97 and sent him to, to work for a year at Bocastel. And he's been in charge of the cellar um, ever, ever since. Yeah. So, yeah, I think continuity matters. I think, I think if you take care of people and give them a project that, that they're inspired by, um, they will stay. And um, the, the value of having all of those years of experience is, is incredible. Um, and it's, it's not, something that you can, not something you can fake. Just talk a little bit about the, the, the media you do, because you're a very good blogger. You've won lots of awards for your blogging. And you also have a very good Instagram Live, which I recommend people watch. Uh, is it on the Tablas Creek site or, 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 or uh, name, or is it under your own name? So the Instagram Live is at the, at the Tablas Creek handle. Yeah, okay, handle, um, yeah, cool. Yeah. So, so my background is a teaching background. Yeah. Um, that was I, I taught my way through graduate school and, and afterwards for, for a few years. And I realized early on, as, as we'd set ourselves this challenge of selling blended wines from grapes that people didn't know, uh, that we needed to get people inside our world. If we wanted to have, have any real hope of being successful, we needed, we needed people inside that bubble, not outside. Is that why you're doing it in a way, to, to, to get the word out? Yeah. That was why I started, for sure. That's absolutely why we started, is that we realized like, people don't know enough to know why they should be excited about the things that we're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the early years, that was tough because we didn't have a lot of those tools. I mean, we didn't have, nobody had a blog in 2002. Uh, it just didn't exist. You did. social, <laughs> social media didn't get, didn't get up and going for another decade, really. So the tools that we, that we now have available to us are so powerful and in general, so easy to use and, and so inexpensive that like, it feels a little bit like, like I'm a kid in a candy store that I've, I've got the, the ability to do all of this. But it's, it's a form of marketing, but you enjoy it as well, don't you? might get the sense when you're doing your lives, you're having fun. It is. Yeah. I, I love to write. And um, it's, this is sort of my, my creative outlet is to, is to write and to, to take pictures. Um, we've, been, we've been working on our blog since 2007, which is a very, very long time in the world of blogs. Um, and it gives us the chance to kind of dive deep into the sorts of things that I find fascinating. And so if anybody goes and, and, and peruses through that blog, we have over a thousand posts uh, wow. on it, uh, but it dives into everything from the stuff you might expect, like winemaking and, and grape growing, but it also dives into business and culture and people and um, other wines that we find inspiring. Yeah. And it, it hopefully reflects the, that diverse level of interest and opportunities that I find so appealing about an, being an estate winery. And it's not just about one, one piece of that. I mean, is that one of your main releases from the business world that, you know, the day-to-day business of, run, of running an estate? It is. I, I, realized, I realized that some of the best blogs that I write are, are about the things that are keeping me up at night. Um, so it gives me a, a way to kind of process the, the challenges that, that any business will deal with. Um, but also it's a, it's a great way of creating community because you have people who will read that. It's, I, I realized that it's read by a lot of other winemakers and, and, and business owners. It's read by other writers. Um, and so it's, it, it's a chance for me to, to engage with other people about the things that I'm finding either exciting or stressful or, um, otherwise worthy of a, a, a deeper dive. 
and, and archaeology. Are you, are you still interested in that? I am. I don't get to do much of it, uh, but I, I always make sure that whenever uh, whenever I have the, the the pleasure of ending up in Europe, I'm, I'm spending time in museums and trying to yeah. go out and, and and do some exploration on my own. Go look at a few sites. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, James, it's been fascinating talking to you. I mean, the Tapas Creek site has got the blogs on it, and also that your Instagram handle is Tapas Creek, yeah, which is where you're doing your your Instagram lives from. It's been fascinating talking to you. I think particularly inspiring the work you're doing in the vineyards. I mean, what a story. I think it, it really is. I hope lots of people will listen to what you're doing and just take heart from it. Thanks, Tim. And really, if, if we can inspire other people to to at least take their first steps along this path, that's where that's where it really matters. I mean, we I, we can do what we can do on our 270 acres, but um, that's a tiny fraction of what's out there. And and we are very much an open book, ready to help anybody who 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 would like to to follow along on this path just let us know we're get, happy to get in share touch. what we yeah. do fantastic thank you enjoy the rest of your day uh, and finish that cup of tea see you soon <laughs> thanks tim <laughs> bye bye what a truly inspirational person and do have a read of jason's blog next week my guest is duncan forsyth from mount edward in new zealand's central otago region join me then thanks for listening to cork talk If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.